You're listening to the Horsefest podcast with the founders of Horsefest. I'm Thea. And hello, this is Heidi. Each podcast is dedicated to you and your passion for everything horse. We'll be speaking to elite riders, equestrian experts and special guests, all focused on bringing you inspiration, insights and learning in a way that our horse tribe will enjoy. In today's podcast, we're delighted to talk to Dr. Sue Dyson. Sue is a world-renowned expert in equine orthopaedics with a particular interest in lameness and poor performance in sports horses. Sue is one of our incredible experts who will be sharing her knowledge at Horsefest Festival in July and through a series of online sessions starting in April. Sue, welcome to the Horsefest podcast. We'd love our listeners to get to know you. So um, first of all, can you tell us a little bit about your passion for horses and where it all started? Well, I was like so many people, one of those horse mad small girls. <laughs> so I started riding at the age of five. Um, my parents were not horsey, but my mother was very supportive. And so by the age of seven, I had acquired my first pony called Poppet. Um, I We didn't have any facilities, but we built a stable in the back garden and um, there was a paddock next door, which we could borrow. And I lived close to Epping Forest. So I rode in the forest every day and I was let out on oh, my own. Wow. Sounds idyllic. <laughs> and there was a friend on Saturday mornings who would go for bareback rides through the forest, jumping anything that we came across. <laughs> our hacking was not just a walk. We trotted and cantered most of the way. Um, and I guess I was always quite ambitious and I rapidly outgrew Poppet. Um, uh, she became too slow. So I got <laughs> bigger ponies and then better ponies, but also always starting with ponies that hadn't really done anything and producing them and then, um, uh, outgrowing them and selling them and starting again with something a bit bigger. And at the same time, developing a passion for wanting to train ponies correctly. So I learned quite quickly how to make ponies or encourage ponies to work on the bit. We didn't have any facilities, but you could do all that schooling out in the forest or on the village green. Mm -hmm. um, I was fortunate enough that my mother was encouraging me. So we identified somebody who would help me. And my mother used to uh, collect me from school and sometimes take me for lessons after school. So I was very fortunate in that respect and developed a passion for competition and wanting to do well. And that's how it all developed, really. And then later on, I have been very, very lucky to have produced three horses which have finished up being world class horses. Wow. Uh, so it's been quite a journey. And on that way, I've met lots of people who've also been very influential in my professional career, too. Oh, amazing. That sounds fantastic. I, I have memories back in childhood as well of those bareback rides like only kids do. We used to go around to a friend's garden and her dad, would, uh, who wasn't horsey, would sort of hang bits of stick between two um, two lumps of wood and we'd just jump them and play puissance with no saddles. Completely <laughs> crazy. If you look back now, you just think, what was I thinking? <laughs> it gets your seat it, though, doesn't it? it does. Absolutely. It, it taught you so much survival. <laughs> yeah, stickability. That was us. Yeah. <laughs> oh, fantastic. And 
And how do you keep that passion for riding alive now? Where do you get your riding fix? Um, well, not as much as I used to, particularly in the last year, because um, I love going on riding safaris. Mm. And I should have gone on to Kenya last October. But of course, that was a victim of COVID, uh, which was a tragedy. Mm. And I have a series of friends who horses I quite often have ridden. But that's also been somewhat stymied by COVID regulations. So most recently, all I've done is ride clients' lame horses, which is not really much fun. <laughs> oh, no. It's not quite the same. <laughs> no. <laughs> but it does give me a feel for what's going on. Yeah, very yeah. true. But you're hoping to get back to Kenya um, as soon as you can, uh, I guess. Hopefully this October, yes. We'll oh, see. Yeah, one of the most magical, memorable moments of my entire life. I was fortunate enough two years ago to go to Botswana on safari yeah. and yeah. galloping with zebras will stick with me oh, till my yes. dying day. I'm zebras, ready. buffalo, um, uh, giraffe. Oh, wow. That's what's really amazing, yeah. being behind giraffe. And the horses love it. Yes. They absolutely adore it. Yeah. And giraffes always look like they're running in slow motion, don't they? They're the most absolutely. amazing Absolutely, yes. Your, your, your horse is pounding along, going as fast <laughs> as it possibly can. And the giraffe is just there in slow motion. Very, very slow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, Heidi, you have to you have to go. It has to it's be on, on your my list. list. I have one of those slight fear things though of pounding along and then falling off and then being underneath the pounding buffalo. <laughs> I think I need to get over that. <laughs> yeah, I have to say, I I had to overcome a little bit of um I don't know what you'd call it, imposter syndrome, maybe. I took my back protector with me and I had my full hat and back protector on. There were lots of people on the safari who weren't, but that was how I was comfortable with galloping at a gazillion miles an hour. <laughs> uh, thinking, OMG, they hit a, a spring hair hole. We're in. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I have had a horse that stumbled and fell when we were galloping at speed. And I tell you, the ground was very hard. Oh, I yeah. bet. Yeah. Very hard. Yeah. amazing yeah well, that's, that's definitely got to be on your bucket list Heidi Kenya definitely. or Botswana either any either yes. of the above yeah yeah no you're tempting with both of you <laughs> <laughs> um it, your expertise Sue is absolutely legendary in the horse world um so how did your career come come about how did, what was your vet's journey well I wasn't um I wasn't dedicated to becoming a vet from a child. In fact, I was a very late starter. Halfway through the sixth form, I suddenly thought, what am I going to do? Uh, and I had a passion for horses and thought about doing horses, but my father was very, very against this. So suddenly I thought, I'll be a, a horse vet. So I switched A-level subjects halfway through the sixth form and was fortunate enough to get into vet school at Cambridge. Uh, and thought, well, it's going to be straightforward from here on. I'm going to be a horse vet. But what I hadn't really realized was that at that time, this was um, in the late 70s, 1970s, when I was at vet school, that actually there were very few women in the veterinary profession, let mm. alone horse vets. But I was a somewhat lucky because 
um, through my horse connections, I was working for a horse dealer in my spare time, David Arthur, who has uh, been a kind of mentor of mine from a riding perspective for a long time. And he used a vet called John Aliff from Kent, whereas we were based in Essex. And John was ahead of his time in, with respect to lameness diagnosis and in terms of having seen the world. And he said, I spent a year in the United States um, under the auspices of a Touron scholarship. I think you should apply for a Touron scholarship. So I investigated this, and this was an Anglo-American exchange thing for people from all sorts of disciplines between the UK and the University of Pennsylvania. And I was fortunate enough to be awarded a Touron scholarship, which meant that I then spent a year at the University of Pennsylvania uh, being an additional intern in the hospital there. And that hospital was one of the biggest and best hospitals in the United States at that time and still is. And it was full of tremendous people. And you just learned by osmosis, mm. just being around. And you just you saw so much, you heard so much discussed, you learned so quickly. It was an amazing experience. Mm. Um, and I actually stayed on for an extra year in the United States, uh, gaining more experience and also luckily riding horses as well. <laughs> uh, and then I was offered a job back in the UK and I thought, well, I am missing the UK in some respects. So that's when I came back to the Animal Health Trust, where I started as a clinician in 1982. Uh, and really developed myself from there on and I was helped in my career after that was because I was also competing and competing to a reasonably high level and for example going cross-country the commentators knew that I was a vet and knew that I worked in Newmarket. So during the cross-country commentary, they would say, and this is Sue Dyson, vet from Newmarket. <laughs> Great advertising. <laughs> Incredible advertising, yes. And so I had some, I developed some wonderful clients through that. Mm. Um, and that's really how it's all started. And uh, at the Animal Health Trust, you were encouraged to uh, both do clinical work and ask questions um, and therefore do some clinically related research, um, which I enjoyed. And I've always asked questions, um, never accepted just this is the truth, this is how things are, but always said, well, why? Is that really the case? Um, that's not consistent with what I've observed. And then as you gain more experience and you ask questions and you record stuff, you begin to see patterns and you make new diagnoses, um, recognize that this treatment works and this treatment doesn't work, and you develop an inquiring mind. Mm. And I'd never really contemplated the fact that being a vet would allow me to travel, but it has. I've been around the world teaching people about my experiences, which has also been fantastic because it's enabled me to meet other like-minded people, learn from them, um, make friends. Uh, yeah, it's been an amazing journey. Fantastic. Yeah, it sounds fascinating. And uh, yeah, such a great experience, the opportunity to be away, be in the States and um, 
yeah to learn from fabulous people is it's just it's a great opportunity isn't it oh yes I, I I mean I learned so much during that time um and as I said also had the opportunity to ride which was great because prior to going to the states I'd also worked part-time for Sheila Wilcox the first lady to ride in the European event championships and whilst working for her I had met the American team trainer Jack Legoff and Bruce Davidson who at that time was the world event champion they'd come to Sheila Wilcox to try some young horses and I had ridden those horses for them and it was just coincidental that after I'd been in the States for a few days, Bruce Davidson brought a horse into the clinic and he recognized me and said, do you want to come and ride horses for oh, me? Wow. Uh, yeah. and so so not, there I was. Not just any horses then. Yeah. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> Bruce Davidson's horses. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. So that was another uh, incredibly serendipitous thing. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wonderful. And you talked about your work looking at lameness um but we've been chatting to you about how about sharing that work and trying to i guess educate and and help other people who are sort of normal everyday riders just like us to understand more about what their horse feels like when it's normal what lameness might feel like what symptoms you might get tell us a bit more about that work well I mean, I've always thought that lameness was the most common reason for horses not being in work. And, and having been a rider, I've appreciated the ups and downs of owning a horse and owning a lame horse and how awful that is. Um, so I can empathize with owners about how, um, how depressing it is to have a lame horse. But I also recognize that many owners have failed to recognize lameness and the problem, has, it's clear when I acquire the history from them, that the problem has probably been there for considerably longer than they had realized. Mm. And the longer a problem has been there, the more difficult it becomes to treat successfully. So I have been on a mission, really, to try and enhance people's ability to recognize problems earlier and seek professional advice earlier, because I think... If you do that, you stand a much better chance of successful management of the problems. Um, and having been a rider, I have uh, both good, well-moving horses and lame horses. I think that as a rider, you can feel many things if you know what you're trying to feel. And if you've also had the opportunity to ride sound horses. Mm. And I think one of the reasons that some people are not very good at recognizing sound horses is actually because they've never had the opportunity to, to ride a really a completely pain-free horse. So they've always been riding horses which have made some adaptations to underlying problems. Yeah. And I have recognized that this, um, what you can feel is one thing, but also what you can observe in terms of the horse's behavior is another thing. Mm. Um, I think we have been conditioned to thinking that normal horses could be grumpy horses, or they may be unwilling horses, or they may be always stiffer on the left rein, or less willing to canter on the left rein, and everybody's accepted that as being normal for horses. I personally don't believe that is normal for horses those things tell me that the horse has got a problem. Mm. Um, 
so we have done a huge amount of work in the last five years or so proving how um, behavior, abnormalities of behavior are indeed related to underlying pain. Yeah. Yeah. And those, I'm guessing those behavioral differences are things, are the things that people can potentially see more clearly, aren't they? Yes, yes. I I went down this route in part because I realized how difficult it was to teach people how to recognize lameness. And I thought that it might be easier for them to recognize behavioral changes. Um, And I think this has been proven to be the case because since I started promoting this work, I've had a lot of people who've come to me saying, I've heard what you've said and I've started to look at my horse and I realize there's probably a problem. Can you help me now? Yeah, it's very it's very interesting, isn't it? It's it's much more accessible way of receiving communication from the horse, I think, as a as a an everyday rider. I find it very hard. I've had lame horses and, and when they're one tenth, two tenth lame, I'm looking and I'm thinking, I'm not sure I can see it. But I, I feel yeah. that this this feels like a much more accessible way of understanding the the things that our horses are trying to communicate to us. Yeah, I, I, I'm absolutely sure it is. And um, for example, I use it at pre-purchase examinations. I looked at a horse um, just yesterday, which was an expensive dressage horse. Um, the vendor could not see that the horse had a problem. Um, I had seen videos of it in advance and I was convinced this horse had a problem. Uh, and both from a behavioral point of view and from a movement point of view, unquestionably, this horse did have a problem. And by being able to explain all the behavioral aspects, the vendor then became more understanding as to why I wasn't recommending purchase, because I was absolutely convinced that this horse had pain related problems. Oh, very interesting. I'm sure very disappointing for them, but but in, in the long uh, disappointing run, for, yeah, the right, yeah, 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 disappointing for the vendor and for the purchaser. Yeah. But the purchaser herself had had some inkling in that she had said, he doesn't move his back as I think he should do. Yeah. Mm. Uh, and that's the way horses often adapt to low-grade lameness, particularly if it's lameness in more than one limb, by stiffening their backs. And that way they protect themselves to some extent. And so you become less aware that they're actually lame. They just work in a more economical way. Yeah. And I guess the positive thing of this understanding is, like you say, you can intervene sooner. So potentially you could nip things in the bud that you might not... Absolutely, because the longer things go on, the more the horse adapts its way of moving. So um, neuromuscular pathways change, their muscle development changes, they get secondary pain elsewhere, and you get into a downward spiral. Yeah, and actually, I can relate, and I'm sure a lot of our audience listeners can, that you, you might think that it will cost more money to go down a deeper investigation earlier if you started to notice a lot of these behavioral changes but actually it might save money in the long run mightn't it on some occasions oh yes you might have a horse at the end of the day (laughs) yeah which is what we all want and so we're really excited that you're going to be sharing this this knowledge in a really relatable and accessible way for our audience at the festival in july and also through these series of online learning sessions on our membership community horse tribe so can you just perhaps give you a few um a few highlights um a sense of of what they might learn at the first one which is um the first online learning session which is on april the 23rd well there's going to be a series of four 
sessions that are going to be telling a story, but each one is can be looked at independently. And the first one is going to focus on what is normal, because I think unless you understand what normal is, it's very difficult to recognize abnormality. Yeah. So we have to focus on how should the normal horse look in terms of its posture, its muscle development, and its movement under all circumstances. Uh, and yeah, I think that's absolutely fundamental. Yeah, that's a brilliant question. What's yeah. normal? What, uh, yeah. yeah, absolutely. I could ask that of myself as well as I creak out of bed in the morning. <laughs> Likewise, I wouldn't survive a trot up. <laughs> <laughs> oh fantastic we're really looking forward to those and i i think we're 22nd of april isn't oh, it yeah sorry um, that you're coming up <laughs> i wonder what you're signaling at me you're right 22nd <laughs> <laughs> oh brilliant so fantastic experiences you're going to be sharing there with us sue um i'd like to ask you a slightly different question now um about what's been your most memorable horsey moment so far so not just career-wise but but anything this is really easy for me. I produced a horse called Kinvara, who I bought very cheaply because he reared. But he went quite rapidly from novice to advanced. And by the time he was seven, he was an advanced event horse wow. and competing at medium level dressage. And then he had a minor injury. So I bought another horse just so I didn't get on with him too quickly. And that next horse was very talented too. So I finished up making the decision I would sell Kinvara because I couldn't keep both of them. And Kinvara was sold to Santiago de la Rocha, who was um, a Spanish rider. The horse was kept with Mark Todd and he was bought solely with the idea of going to the Olympics. So wow. he was sold in January and went to the Seoul Olympics in September oh, of that goodness. year. And he jumped a clear round and it was on the television and it was three o'clock in the morning and I was at the British Equine Veterinary Association Congress as a speaker. So I couldn't go to Seoul, but I watched it on the television and Lucinda Green was commentating and she said this horse Kinvara was produced by Sue Dyson, vet from Newmarket. Oh. And it was just so amazing. I wanted oh. to tell the world that my horse had just jumped a clear round at the Olympic oh, Games. It was amazing. That's so, so exciting. You must have been so proud. <laughs> I, I really, really I was, bet. yes. I yes. bet. Um, and what's been your biggest challenge um, in your equestrian career so far? Um, well, I'm tiny. I'm 43 kilos and I'm 152 centimetres tall. Um, and even when I came back from the United States, there was still a huge amount of discrimination. The profession was very, very, very male dominated. And as a tiny, very young looking woman at that stage, that was a big challenge. Even though I'd had kind of leg up start by having been in the States for two years, it was still very difficult. Um, and I don't think that the women in the profession now have any idea of how it was in the early 80s. How, how did yeah. you overcome that, Sue? Well, I, I think because I had been to the States and had that experience, that was a number one help. And the very fact that I was being promoted via my own riding activities was another thing. 
And clients pretty rapidly began to learn that I understood their rider-related problems, which so many other vets didn't. Mm -hmm. And that gave me respect. Uh, And I was quite early on invited to speak at some uh, continuing education courses put on by the British Equine Veterinary Association. And I had, um, I guess, what was considered a very good way of delivering information. And that, too, helped a lot in that people realized that I had something to say and that actually it was worth listening to. And I kind of pushed back the barriers somewhat in terms of saying the traditional methods of looking at lameness did not involve many nerve blocks. And this to me was completely wrong. For me, you had to define where the source of pain was coming from before you could proceed any further. So I was very instrumental in um, pushing the routine use of nerve blocks. Uh, And that was facilitated by the fact that when I had been in the United States, we had used a local anesthetic solution called Mepivacaine. And there were no adverse reactions to that. And when I came back to the UK, I realized it wasn't available in the UK. And the local anesthetic solution that we were using in the UK tended to cause soft tissue swellings, which clients hated. But I managed to persuade a Swedish company to uh, allow us to do a trial with the Mepifocaine, which they were producing in Sweden. And through that, they got licensed for use in the UK. And that really revolutionized the acceptance to clients of the routine use of nerve blocks. Um, And uh, that got promoted through the profession. And yeah, that was a a good start. Yeah. So building your your reputation. So it sounds like you had to be quite tenacious and full of self-belief. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Particularly when I started at the Animal Health Trust, there had only been one woman there before me. And she had attempted to do some nerve blocks with disastrous consequences. So everybody was really anti the whole prospect of doing it. But I managed to persuade them and I managed to show them how we could do it safely for everybody and safely for the horse and of what huge benefit it was from a diagnostic perspective. Mm. Um, so, yes, um, it was it was tough. Yeah. Well, from a from a tough situation to we're going to flip it now to something funny. <laughs> so. Have you got a funny story you can share with our listeners from your time as a vet or a rider? Um, well, there are there are lots. There are lots. <laughs> um, I guess we'll start back with Kinvara. As I said, Kinvara I bought as a known rearer. And I learnt how to stop him rearing under most circumstances. But if you were waiting to start across country and somebody was finishing towards you, he would rear. And that was something I was never able to control. So I would always ask the starter, please can we wait until this person has finished and then I'll go into the start box. And on this occasion, the starter said, no, you've got to go into the start box um, because we're going to be running behind time otherwise. So I took the horse into the start box and thought, well, the only way I'm going to cope with this is to face him at the back of the start box. (laughs) And before, before... the starter could start counting me down. The horse jumped from a standstill out of the back of the start box. 
So he couldn't start counting me down because I wasn't in the start box. <laughs> Literally over By the which rail. time, oh. absolutely, absolutely. By which time the other person had finished. So I could then go into the start <laughs> box in the conventional fashion. <laughs> I love that. That's one way to avoid rearing. Jump out. Yeah. <laughs> Extra jumping effort along the way. Loving it. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Oh, brilliant. And, and just finally, be before we have to say goodbye, um, We'd love you to pass on a relatable top tip to our to our horse tribe that are listening. Um, what would be that? What would that be? I think it will be learn to look at your horse and think about what you're seeing. And that way you will start to observe things that you hadn't noticed previously. Mm, yeah. And that's very important. Yeah, a bit very, very be important. curious, as you said earlier, be curious, look and ask questions. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, fantastic. We've enjoyed speaking with you so much, Sue. It's really nice um, to find out the Sue behind the professional uh, person that we see at lots of events, etc. as well, and really hear about you. Um, and I've got this a vision of you galloping bareback through forests and jumping over <laughs> logs and things. So uh, we absolutely loved hearing about all of the sides to you. So thank you so much for speaking to us. You're very welcome. And it's been a pleasure. Oh, thank you. It's been and, fab. Uh, yeah. And our listeners can um, watch you turn into an audience and watch you on the 22nd of April. She says, saying the correct date this time. So we look forward to seeing you then, Sue. See you then, Sue. Okay, thank you. Bye for now. Thank you for listening to the Horse Fest podcast. We'd love you to subscribe, rate and review the podcast and share it with your horse tribe. Keep tuning in for more episodes with elite riders, equestrian experts and special guests.